So welcome to Foundations. Um, as I was just saying, this is our last class in our two-year rotation. Um, so over the course of the past two years, we've covered a lot of different doctrines, so doctrines related to the person of God, and in particular, the three persons of the Trinity. We've talked about doctrines related to sin and salvation in Christ. We've talked about doctrines related to the structure and operation of the church. And more recently, we've been uh, discussing doctrines related to the end times. So last week, Jonathan Broadbent led us through a helpful lesson on the final judgment. And so this week, we are going to be looking at what happens after the final judgment, what, what we refer to as the eternal state. Um, but before we get into that, uh, James, would you mind praying for us? Yes. Yeah, Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for the promises in your word that we know um, that you will... Uh, yeah, save and redeem your people, um, that we will uh, live with you forever uh, by no merit of our own, but by the work of your Son. So we pray that you would help us to learn about the eternal state uh, today, and that would encourage us and help us to love you and uh, fellow believers anymore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. So um, at the top of your handout, you'll see our main idea for today, and that is that the eternal state refers to the placement and condition of every single person following the final judgment. I'll read that again. Uh, the eternal state refers to the placement and condition of every single person following the final judgment. And depending on your relationship with Christ, this, this concept will have radically different implications. For those who are saved and in Christ, it is the promise of eternal joy in perfect union with Christ. Um, but for those who are not saved, um, living in unbelief, it is a warning of eternal punishment and torment permanently separated from their God. <clears throat> and while most of us don't have difficulty, I think, with the concept of eternal reward, uh, the concept of eternal punishment is something particularly, I think, in our modern society that is something that's difficult to, to, to grapple with. Um, particularly if, if we think of people that we know that have since passed away, including um, family, relatives, um, that we might consider to be good people, but from all indications we don't know if they were saved or not. Um, it's, it's difficult, this concept of eternal punishment, um, to think that they might be suffering that. Um, and in particular, the, the, the teaching that we have in Scripture, that this is, this is not passive punishment, but this is, this is, this is a conscious punishment that they will, they will experience. Um, so this is a teaching that we don't approach casually or flippantly, but soberly. Um, but it's also a teaching that we don't avoid. Um, so our, our goal this morning is to reckon with what Scripture says about the eternal state of our souls. We as Christians are followers of Jesus first and foremost, and as followers of Jesus, that also means following Jesus' teachings, including when those teachings don't fit with our modern sensibilities or our preferences. We don't have the ability to pick and choose what aspects of Christ's teachings that we're, we are going to listen to, but rather we are called to submit to the authority of the full canon of Scripture. And so we're going to read a lot of passages this morning and hopefully uh, understand a little bit more about the eternal state, both the punishment and the reward that can be expected. Um, and as we approach these scriptures, let's, we're going to try to be objective in our interpretation rather than bringing our own prior um, beliefs or desires to it and trying to understand these scriptures in context as a whole. So 
With that in mind, we are going to discuss three main uh, sections today. So we're going to start with some background introduction, talk about some key concepts, and then we will discuss the two uh, potential destinations in the eternal state. So the lake of fire and the new heavens and the new earth. Um, so on in the introduction, uh, to help us understand the, the two destinations that are at play in the eternal state, it's important to understand um, and see how humanity is divided in Scripture. So if we could turn to Romans 5, we'll be reading in verse 17, Romans 5, 17. If you get there and able to read it, Good. thank you. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Thank you. So we see in, in this passage that all of humanity can be boiled down into two people, Adam and Jesus. So everyone who has ever lived is connected to or associated with one of these persons. Either they are in Adam or they are in Christ. We see from this passage that in Adam there is trespasses and death, and in Christ there is the free gift of righteousness and life. And therefore you are either condemned or you are saved. You are either under judgment or you are under the gospel. There's no middle ground in there. You are either dead or alive. You are either against God or you are united with him. And as Jonathan explained last week, there will be no ambiguity as to our position um, at the final judgment. When the books are opened, it'll be clear whether we are in Adam or we are in Christ. And corresponding to these two people are the two destinations in the eternal state. Um, so for those who are in Christ, we will receive the reward of conscious, irreversible, everlasting joy with their maker in the new heavens and the new earth. By contrast, those who are in Adam and reject Jesus will be sentenced to conscious, everlasting, irreversible punishment for their rebellion against the Creator. So before we, we, we jump into to both of those, it raises an important question of why is punishment appropriate and necessary? Why, do, why, why does God have to give any sort of punishment? I think that's right, and I think there are two related ideas that are kind of baked into that. So the first is is that evil and sin exist, and by their nature require punishment. Um, so I, I do think, in some sense, that's that's an intuitive thought, but I also think that's an idea that has been under attack in more recent times. So people's views of justice have changed since pre-modern times. There's been this concept of retributive justice. 
So kind of what we see in the Law of Moses and the Lex Talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's the idea that sin and evil necessarily requires a fitting punishment. It's a necessary response to evil. Whereas in more recent times, there's kind of been a shift in a view of punishment away from retributive justice, more to viewing punishment as a way of deterring wrongdoing and also as rehabilitating the offender. So basically, we administer punishment in order to deter the offender or other people from committing the same offense again, or as a way of bringing people who we consider outliers back into society. Um, and tied to that is the, the, the similar modern notion kind of removing personal responsibility from individual behavior and viewing it more as a result of external influences. So environmental factors, biological predisposition, um, genetic predisposition. Um, and so by removing personal responsibility and focusing on this, this other um, view of punishment, the idea that people who are sinful will be facing eternal punishment is something that's difficult for non-believers to grasp. And also for some believers, it causes them to soften their view of hell and maybe adopt kind of a, a middle position of annihilationism. So the idea that while there might be torment for a time, at a certain point, those who are outside of Christ will cease to exist and no longer experience punishment. <clears throat> and I, and I, I do want to be clear on that, that there are instances where punishment serves both to deter and to rehabilitate. So we see that in our legal system, particularly in the criminal law. And for those who are parents, as Kayla was saying, we, we see that at play. Um, and, and even in healthy church discipline, a major purpose of that is to bring people back into the body of Christ. And so there is a purpose for deterring and rehabilitation and punishment. But those don't take away from what scripture teaches us and what humankind has recognized for, for most of human history, and that is wrongdoing necessarily requires punishment, a fitting punishment. As Romans 6.23 makes clear, that punishment uh, for sin is death. Um, so that, that's the first point. And the second point, I think, of what Kayla's saying is that all mankind has intentionally done evil. So people are not punished simply because they have not heard the gospel. Um, Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, and every person's sin is inexcusable. There's no one who's going to stand before God at the final judgment and say, oh, my, skin, my sin is excused because it was unintentional or it wasn't ultimately my fault. Um, people deserve punishment from God because we purposefully value something else more than him something else that is created in the place of the creator. So if we could uh, turn to Romans 1. When you get there, if I could have somebody read um, verses 18 to 25. Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. 
Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Thank you. So here we see that all of mankind is guilty of the greatest cosmic insult, is that we all know God, and we even know of his invisible attributes rising to the level of his divine nature and his eternal power, and nonetheless, we say no thank you, and we exchange him for the creation. This is if we are telling the creator of the universe, who is the most significant and important part of reality, that I don't want you, I don't need you, and these trivial things are more important to me than you. And, and, and all of our individual sin flows out of that fundamental uh, exchange, that diverted affections. All of the evil that we do to other people derives from our preoccupation with aspects of creation, whether it be money, power, pleasure, all comes from our ultimate transgression of exchanging God for the things that he himself has made. And it's that evil, that blasphemy against the God of the universe that is evil and is deserving of a fitting punishment, namely eternal separation from the God that we have rejected. Are there any questions on, on that sort of introductory material or comments? All right, then we will go ahead and move into our, our, our second main point, which is the lake of fire. Now, we're starting with the lake of fire not because it's the most important or what Christians should be preoccupied with, but rather, as I was saying at the beginning, this, I think, is the part of the teaching of the eternal state that is the hardest to, to grapple with and, and come to terms with, so we want to take that head on. And, and, and also, and just in the order of things, that's where we were all destined to, to go, apart from Christ. And so we were all headed to the lake of fire. And, and then Christ intervened, and now we have a greater hope, which we will, we will conclude with in going to the new heavens and the new earth. Um, so, so to start us off on, on the topic of the lake of fire, let's turn to Revelation 20. So we will be in Revelation a lot today, as you would expect. So if you want to keep a, a finger in there or some sort of bookmark, that might be helpful. So um, we're going to be reading Revelation 20. Uh, verses 10 to 15. Somebody could read that when they get there. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Thank you. So we see here that the lake of fire is the destination for eternal punishment for uh, Satan and his minions. This will be their just uh, punishment for having rebelled against God um, time before the creation. But we also see it's not just for 
for people who we might consider evil. I, I think most people approaching this passage wouldn't necessarily take many of the, the people throughout history, such as a Hitler, would not have a difficulty understanding that they might face eternal punishment. But, but this passage makes clear that this eternal punishment is also for all those who are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So in other words, all those who are in Adam and not in Christ. So some other terms um, that are used to describe this, this eternal state of punishment or a lake of fire, Jesus describes it as the outer darkness. So in Matthew 8, 11, he writes, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the outer darkness, of course, is drawing a, a clear contrast to the new heavens and the new earth where the light of Christ will so permeate the new heavens and new earth that there will be no, there will be no nighttime, there will be no need for a sun. Um, but here in this place of punishment, it is outer darkness. Another term that Jesus uses is Gehenna. So in Matthew 5, 30, uh, talking about cutting off your right hand, if it causes you to sin, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Here, the, the term that is used for hell is Gehenna, which is a Greek term that's taken from a literal uh, burning dump outside of Jerusalem. So where people would take their trash and their refuse and go burn it. And so here, Jesus is referring to hell basically as a burning trash heap. There, there is no relief. There is nothing good um, in that place. Um, any questions before we move on to our first subpoint? All right. So we're going to talk about uh, punishment. Um, we're going to ask ask a couple of questions and try to answer them. So what kind of punishment is this? And then are there degrees of punishment? Um, so we're going to have a few different passages we're reading. So I'm going to read off those passages if I could get volunteers and then we can, we can move a little more efficiently through that. So could I have somebody uh, take Isaiah 66, 24? Thank you. Um, Mark 9, 47? Thank you. Um, and then Revelation 14, 9 through 10. Thank you. All right, so the first question is, what kind of punishment is this? Um, and Scripture makes abundantly clear that this is a physical, tangible punishment that leads to actual anguish on the part of those receiving it. So um, you read Isaiah 66, 24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Thank you. So, so what, what two concepts do we see here? What, what two sorts of affliction? Worms and fire. Worms and fire, that's right. And it's not just in Isaiah. Um, Jesus preaches that as well. So uh, Mark 9, 47 through 48. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Thank you. So, so, so here the, the comparison is to worm and to fire. Now, we don't know if this is a reference to an actual worm or if this is a reference to an actual fire. But, but the ultimate takeaway from these passages 
is that the type of punishment that will be experienced is the equivalent of being eaten alive by a worm or to be burned alive with fire. This is, this is a tangible and real pain. And this is reinforced by the reaction of those who are experiencing this punishment. So the, the passage that I read earlier, Matthew 8, 12, describes their response as weeping and gnashing of teeth. This isn't just kind of some passive separation from God. This is, this is actual torment that they are experiencing that is causing them to, to weep and to gnash their teeth. And, and the substance of this punishment ultimately represents the wrath and fury of a holy God against sin. So Romans 2.8 says, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So this punishment is the result of a holy God administering punishment that is just against sin. As we're, we're thinking about that, though, I, I do think we want to take a step back and make sure we're, we're not including all forms of discipline that God administers with this final judgment um, in the eternal state. So there are times that God allows our sin to produce consequences in our lives, and that is, in fact, a mercy. It's a way of him teaching us righteousness, what is righteous living, and also shows our need for repentance and hopefully will, will draw us to Christ. And it's important because there will come a day here in the eternal state when there is no ability to undo that decision, where people will not be able to walk away from their rejection of Christ, and the full unmitigated wrath of God will be visited on sin. So if we could read uh, Revelation 14, 9 through 10. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. Poured out, sorry, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Thank you. If you could just hold your place in there, we're going to be coming back to that passage in a little bit. Um, but here we see that in the final, final state, the eternal state, there will no longer be mercy mixed with God's punishment. Um, it will be the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. I also want to take a quick aside, which I think is an important aside, is that we as believers don't need to fear the wrath of God. So God does discipline us, but that's part of his loving kindness toward us and sanctifying us and continuing to mold us more and more into his image. But we don't need to fear wrath. Jesus took that for us on the cross, and so we don't need to look forward to the, the day of final judgment with apprehension. Rather, we can, we can approach it with confidence, knowing that Jesus has already borne um, the consequences of our sin. All right, any questions about section so far? All right, so on top of this affirmative torment that people in the lake of fire will experience, there's what's more significant is the absence of anything good flowing from God's benevolent presence. So in this lake of fire, God's benevolent presence is not there. So could I have somebody read for us 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9? Thanks. If you go, go ahead and read it whenever you get there. Taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. Thanks. 
So we see here that they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction where? Away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. This is, is this is speaking of a complete separation from God, being totally cut off from any of his blessings. There's absolutely no joy, no common graces whatsoever. So we see in other places in scripture, writes about God giving rain to both the just and the unjust. And here, that's not going to happen. Um, we see that in particular in the parable of rich man and Lazarus. Um, Luke 16, he writes, uh, starting in verse 24, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. So we see here that not even a drop of water to cool the tongue is available here in this place of eternal punishment. So the good that flows from God being present in this current world is not going to be present in the lake of fire. Um, now you might, might have noticed that there could be an apparent, a uh, uh, an apparent tension between uh, the passage we just read in Revelation 14 and then in 2 Thessalonians. So 2 Thessalonians said they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And then Revelation 14.10 said he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So we have one saying outside of the presence and one in the presence. We know these are not contradictory, so how do we reconcile these two passages? say one in the presence of the Lord is can be referred to in the scripture as um, within his care and in his good presence and good regard for us in our case in, through Christ um, and so we you know we understand God is everywhere but there's a sense in which we come into his presence as Isaiah comes into his presence so David says come into his presence in worship and in, invited there as his children I think the other in revelation is more about in their in in their sight, in dis, on display for all, but yet not in fellowship with him in his presence in the way that we enjoy. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So there's there's the benevolent presence that we will experience as believers in the new heavens and the new earth, and experience also here on this earth. But in the lake of fire, the, the presence of God will only be an administering wrath and punishment. There will not be that benevolent presence. Um, so I do think, yes, that's the, the, the key distinction there. All right, so we have this affirmative form of punishment and also this form of punishment of just being removed from the benevolent presence of the Lord. Um, and now the question is, will there be degrees of punishment within the lake of fire? And, and it does appear that there are degrees of punishment. So going back to what we started with, the, the principle of retributive justice, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, the, the idea would be that the punishment would match to the offense. And also there's this concept that Jesus emphasizes in his teaching of punishment being tied to the degree of revelation that the person has received. So in Matthew 11, Jesus preaches that there are certain cities that will face a harsher punishment at the final judgment because they experienced Christ's miracles but still rejected him. 
whereas other cities like Sodom and Gomorrah did not have that same degree of revelation and so will have a lighter punishment in the final judgment. And also, um, if we can turn to Luke 12, um, 47 to 48, um, strongly suggests that there will be more significant punishments for people who have obtained a greater revelation. So if I could have somebody read Luke 12, 47 to 48. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Yes, thank you. So again, judgment is based on revelation. People are not punished for what they do not know. But going back to what we were discussing earlier, all have intentionally sinned. And so accordingly, everyone who is outside of Christ does warrant eternal punishment. But at the same time, those who are in church every day and hear the gospel, or I should say every week and hear the gospel and still reject it, are going to face a stricter punishment than those who do not hear the gospel. We are accountable for what we know. To whom much is given, much will be required. Any questions on punish the type of punishment or degrees of punishment? Yes. Is there anything in scripture about like what that looks like in practice, or do you think it doesn't really matter what that looks like in practice, or how do we think about that different levels of punishment? Yeah. So there aren't any concrete examples in scripture. Um, the way I've heard it described, and it's kind of the corollary to what we'll talk about when we get to the new heavens and new earth, that there are gradations of reward as well, is the ultimate punishment of being separated from God, experiencing this, experiencing this anguish, will be the same across all people in the lake of fire. But depending on their unique responsibility, the degree of revelation, their capacity for experiencing that torment may be heightened. Um, so the, the form of punishment will not be different, but how they experience it will be more intense. That's the, the best way I've heard it explained. But ultimately, I think it's hard to speculate um, exactly what it would look like. All right. So now we're going to turn to subpoint B. Um, so describing the, the punishment in the lake of fire is eternal or endless. So going back to Revelation uh, 14, um, could you read verses 10 and 11 for us? It says, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, pour full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Thanks. So we see here um, the smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. Some of the other passages that we've already looked at, Second Thessalonians, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. And Revelation 20.10, they will be tormented day and night forever. So taking these together, the clear implication is that this is an endless, eternal state of punishment. It's not something that ends at a certain time, so you, you get your punishment and then you cease to exist. Um, there are some that would look at passages like 2 Thessalonians um, 1.9, a reference to destruction, or other places refer to death, and they would argue that those support perhaps complete annihilationism, but that doesn't seem to fit with the whole counsel of Scripture. 
and in particular, uh, the Bible's teachings on death and destruction. So whenever scripture refers to death, it's of moving from one mode of existence to another. So the first death, the physical death, is not us ceasing to exist. We are moving into another mode of being, and the same is true of the second death. And then in destruction, while it, it, it could be read to mean complete cessation of existence, it can also refer to more of a wrecking. Um, so what is destroyed is henceforth afflicted, non-functional, um, but not annihilated altogether. And taking the passage from Second Thessalonians, for example, it speaks of them being outside the presence of God. And that makes no sense if they have ceased to exist, because in order for them to be separated from God, they have to exist in the first place. Any questions about that? All right. So we'll, we'll um, talk about the last two points here under the lake of fire. So not only is it a tangible punishment or an internal punishment, it's also a conscious uh, punishment. So as we can see from some of the passages we've already looked at, so the response in Matthew 8.12 is weeping and gnashing of teeth. These people are actively experiencing the consequences of their actions and, and the punishment that they receive. And Revelation 14.11 says that they have no rest. So this isn't them just passively or psychologically suffering harm. They are consciously experiencing a very tangible punishment that is ongoing. And then lastly, it's irreversible. So returning to the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, 24 through 26, um, Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. The idea here is, is that once the final judgment has occurred, there is no way to go from the lake of fire to the new heavens and new earth, and vice versa. And this is confirmed in Revelation 21:27, which says, nothing unclean will ever enter it, being the new heavens and new earth, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So once the final judgment has occurred, there is no appeal. There is no possibility of reversing that judgment. We are fixed in our eternal state. And for those who are in Adam and apart from Christ, that is punishment in the lake of fire. So this is, this is a difficult uh, teaching. It's not something that we likely like to lead with if we're trying to share the gospel with somebody. Um, but I think it's also important for us to take a step back and think about what are the implications if we, we soften this teaching? What if, what if we downplay um, the significance of the eternal punishment in the lake of fire. It makes Jesus' sacrifice for us less important because he saved us from less. That's right. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if we downplay the ultimate punishment that we are destined for, it makes the need for Jesus less and what he has done for us less. And, and we're basically, in a sense, giving people an excuse to remain in their sin. Oh, it won't be that bad, so I will continue to do what I am, rather than fully appreciating what is at stake and using that as an opportunity to push them to a place of repentance. Right, yes? I, I was just going to add that I think it also diminishes the holiness of God. Mm. 
Yeah, because the concept of evil and sin requiring a punishment, if God doesn't administer that punishment, it suggests that he is in some ways complicit with it and not holy. That's right. Yeah. So if you're here and you're unsaved and you find this to be a tough teaching, um, it should be. Like this should cause you to consider the, the state of your eternal soul. And if you have questions about what it means to be in Adam or in Christ, we would love to, to talk about that with you. The, we are here because we believe that God is not solely concerned with punishment, but rather he loved us so much that he sent his son to take on human flesh to live a perfect life and yet die a sinner's death and take that full cup of the wrath of God on himself so that we might be reconciled to him, so that we don't have to look forward to this lake of fire with fear, but rather we can look forward to perfect union with him and the new heavens and new earth. If you want to talk about that uh, more, if you have questions, I'm happy to talk to you, talk to any of the members here, or any of the elders. We would, we would love to have that conversation with you. Um, and with that, we get to turn to the, the hopeful and the exciting part of the eternal state. And that is for those who are in Christ, we get to look forward to perfect union with Christ and perfect joy for all of eternity. So if we could uh, turn to Revelation 21. So Revelation 21, chapters 21 and 22, both uh, give detailed accounts of what the new heavens and new earth will look like. Um, we won't go into all of that here, but I encourage you, as you have time, um, to go ahead and read those. It's just encouraging to, to look forward to the time where we get to be fully united with God, where there will be no sin, um, and we will be able to, to live with him in perfect obedience. Um, when you get there, could I have somebody read Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4? Thanks. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Thank you. There's a lot there. Um, we're going to try to unpack that with a series of descriptions of the new heavens and the new earth. Um, but just kind of as, as background on that, so other names that are used to describe this new heavens and new earth are, we see heaven, um, we see Jesus referred to it as new world or new creation. The, the word is a regenesis or regeneration. So evoking this idea of, of God taking what was initially good and had become fallen and recreating it into what it was meant to be um, in the original design. Um, so the most important aspect of this is, is, our, is our first subpoint A, is that the new heavens and new earth will be with God. So just as the most significant punishment for those in the lake of fire will be their eternal separation from God, the biggest reward in the new heavens and the new earth will be our unity with God. Um, so in, in what we just read in verse 3, it mentions three times that God will be with us. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, 
and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So here, the big emphasis is that God will be with his people. And if we, t- if we, if we look at the, the salvific narrative in Scripture, this is the culmination of what has been going on since Genesis chapter 3. So if you recall, in creation, there was perfect union between Adam and Eve in the garden, taking walks with, with God in the evening. But then sin came and messed that up. And in an act of mercy, God was forced to banish Adam and Eve from the garden and broke that fellowship of God dwelling with his people. And everything that has happened since then is the long track of getting back to that perfect union. So we see in Abraham, God making a covenant, a promise of a savior, coming down and walking through the divided animals of making that covenant with Abraham. We see in the Passover, God coming down in judgment, but withholding it or passing over his people. We see in the tabernacle and the temple, God providing a place for his presence to dwell amongst his people and also putting in place a a system of sacrifices and practices that allowed his people to approach him. And especially in this Advent season, we we get to celebrate Jesus coming, Emmanuel, God with us, a, a new revelation of God coming as a man to live among us. And then ultimately his crucifixion, tearing the veil that separated God and man in the temple. And then even more so at Pentecost, God sending his Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to indwell believers, to, to guide them as they seek to pursue Christ. And so then we look forward to the perfect unity after all that when we get to live with Christ um, and feast with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's this focus on being with, with God for all of eternity um, that should, what should drive our hope in this life. And, and that was certainly Paul's main focus. In Philippians 1.23, he writes, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to part and be, depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So better to be with Christ than to be here on this earth. And then every other blessing that we're going to, to, to see in the new heavens and the new earth flows from that being united with God. So, so point B, we have material, uh, physical blessing. So scripture says that we will receive physical glorified bodies just like Jesus did following his resurrection. So if I could have one person read Philippians 3, uh, 20 through 21. Philippians 3, 20 through 21, and then another person read 1 Corinthians 15, 49. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. All right, whoever has Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject Mm-hmm. And then 1 Corinthians fifteen forty nine. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So we don't become more inhuman as we get to heaven, but rather we become the sorts of humans that God intended us to be when he originally created us. And we will be given glorified bodies that will no longer be subject to corruption and decay. We will have increased capacities, and we will be able to see God face to face. No one can can do that on this earth and live. Not only will we have physical glorified bodies, but the rest of creation will be there. 
So we are promised that we will rule with Christ. Revelation 3.21 says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And of course, we have the great promise of the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we will get to feast, eating and drinking with no hunger or thirst in the new heavens and the new earth. So Luke 14.15 says, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then Luke 22:18 Jesus tells for I tell you from that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So this won't just be some spiritualized experience where we are separated from our bodies but this will be just as the punishment in the lake of fire will be physical and real so will the reward that we experience in the new heavens and new earth. Any questions so far? All right, um, and the next uh, point C is this is indeed a reward. Um, could I have somebody read Ephesians 6, 8? Thanks. And then somebody, Luke 6, 22 to 23. Thanks. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, mm -hmm. whether he is a bondservant or is free. Mm -hmm. Thank you. 622-23? Yes, please. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So kind of like what we were talking about in response to James's question on the degrees of punishment, ultimately everyone who is in the new heavens and new earth will be fully reunited with Christ. And so to the extent that they have a capacity for happiness, that capacity will be fully satisfied. There will be nothing needed in the new heavens and new earth apart from, from Christ. But at another level, we are promised that there will be different rewards depending on our, our deeds in this life and that we will be uh, awarded various crowns. Ultimately, we will be placing those at the throne of God in worship, but there, there, is, there are unique rewards that will be given to, to individuals in heaven. At the same time, we also need to pause and, and recognize that there will be no boasting in that. Um, so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So any reward that we do receive um, for our deeds on this life are ultimately just another example of God's grace towards us. They are not anything that we can boast in um, as saying that we earned a right to anything in the new heavens and the new earth. All right, uh, moving on to point D. Um, this will also be a holy place. So um, moral purity, we're, we're told that righteousness will dwell there. So 2 Peter 3.13 but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And on the flip side, there will be an absence of evil. So Revelation 21, 27, we already read, says, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And kind of related with the holiness um, aspect, there will also be wholeness, uh, point E. Could I have somebody read Isaiah 11, 6 through 9?
wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow shall bear the cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Uh, to nine, please. Nine, Thank yeah. you. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Thank you. So we see here, God will be undoing all of the hurt, um, all of the brokenness that came as a result of the fall, and will be putting the created order back into order. And so we see here that even even the animals will no longer be preying upon one another, but rather there will be peace. And, and again, on the flip side of that, there will be an absence of disorder. Um, so Revelation 22, 3 says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. So there will be both holiness and wholeness, and that leads to our last point. Um, it will be endless for all of eternity. So 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. In Revelation 22, 5, we have, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So strong encouragement to us um, in this life as we get to look forward to this perfect uh, time of unity with God and also of living at peace with his creation and ruling together with Christ for all of eternity. In our last uh, couple minutes, I just want to take, take a couple minutes to contemplate some of the implications for us now that we've talked about both the weightiness of punishment and the lake of fire and the joy that we get to look forward to and the new heavens and the new earth. What are some of the applications from that? Um, if you want a cheat sheet, turn your handout over, and there are some su suggestions there. Um, I'll go through these uh, fairly quickly for the sake of time. But evangelism is, I think, the biggest takeaway here. The reality that people who don't know Christ are going to suffer for all of eternity should drive us to share the gospel as the only source of bringing people into the new heavens and the new earth. I think that it also down, should downplay for us the fear of man. Um, at least for me, in sharing the gospel, it's sometimes hard for me to like get that conversation in there because I'm worried about upsetting or offending. But if we take a step back and we think about the significance of not saying something, we're actually leaving them in their sin to face this punishment, which is the exact opposite of the love that we would seek to show toward them. And then second is love. Colossians 1, 4 through 5 says, We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So as we focus on the hope that we have in heaven, that should cause us to have a greater love for our brothers and sisters in Christ who we will get to reign with forever in heaven. Number three is a greater uh, pursuit of purity, or you could, diligence, care, zeal, boldness, just a greater desire to pursue God and to forsake sin, recognizing both the punishment that there is for sin, what it, what it, um, 
would require apart from Christ and punishment in the lake of fire, but also the great hope that we have in living in perfect holiness for all of eternity and starting to do that even now. And then the last point is it should inspire us to eagerly await the second coming of Jesus. So as we experience the the troubles of this life, the promise that there will be a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no sin, where there will be no strife, we can look forward um, excitedly and expectantly. So as, as we know, Revelations 22, 20 concludes, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen, come Lord Jesus. All right, any questions on anything we've discussed, applications, additional comments? Yes. Additional comment, Hebrews 9, uh, 28, on the point D there, it says that Christ is coming back a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And I like that description of like the people who Christ is coming back for to go to the ends of earth, of those who are eagerly anticipating mm-hmm. And just the reminder that we shouldn't just be like going through life, not really, you know, thinking about that, just sort of passively going through. That'll come eventually, but like right now we should be eagerly anticipating that. Right. I mean, how, how eagerly we are anticipating Christ's return is often a good litmus test of our current walk with the Lord. If we are, if we are content in where we are in this life, then we will not be eagerly expecting Christ's return. But if we, if we see our brokenness and our fallenness apart from Christ um, for what it is, we will earnestly desire for that time when we will be given fully glorified bodies, be fully sanctified, and fully united with Christ. It's a little tangential to that, but I think it should encourage us in sufferings Mm -hmm. and hardships. God has many purposes in those, but certainly among those is to wean us from earth and to remind us that this is not your home. This is the cursed earth. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming. Um, And to to make us discontent with with this life and long for that next life. Yeah, absolutely. I think Jonathan said it well last last week in talking about the final judgment, like when we experience injustices or trials in in this world, we know that there is ultimate justice coming. And as you said, we will will have the ultimate blessing of of being with Christ. And so whatever we're experiencing now is just, it's just a shadow and we will see God working through it ultimately in the end. All right, let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Um, Lord, I pray that you would give us humility as we approach um, your teachings, Lord, that we would uh, seek to be faithful to what you have taught us. Um, And Lord, as we we deal with the concept of the eternal state, Lord, I pray that it would cause us to love you even more in your justice and in your mercy and sending your son to die for us so that we we need not face eternal punishment. Um, And Lord, I pray that you would inspire us to to be your hands and feet on this earth, Lord, that you would help us to share the gospel with others boldly, um, and Lord, that you would just equip us to love one another as we look forward to the time where we will all be united with you. Pray that you would be with the rest of uh, our gathering this morning and the preaching of your word, and that you would help your name to be glorified and all of us to be edified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.